This is Race Capital with Chelsea Higgs-Wise and Kat Maudlin-Jackson, where we interrogate racial narratives in our place, space, and time of Richmond, Virginia, the former capital of the Confederacy. I'm from the R, the I, the C, the H, the N, the O, the N, the D. That's my self-teaching. The R, the I, the C, the H, the N, the O, the N, the D. That's my self-teaching. All right, all right, all right. We're back for another episode of Race Capital. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. So let's go ahead and get started with the news that you probably should use. I would want to say congratulations to South Richmond. If you all listened to the episode where the All City Art Club came by and we talked about their Richmond mural right there, we also were able to highlight in another episode with Omari, a local advocate, about that some bus stops do not have all the things that they're supposed to have. And it's an inequitable transportation system. Well, the bus stop right there in front of the Richmond mural done by the all city art club now has a bench y'all it used to literally just be a pole where some places have bench they have overhead they have a trash can well now this southern uh, richmond bus stop also has a bench congratulations and we'd like to think it's because of our advocate our art advocates over there at all city art club so keep up the progress Meanwhile, if you are thinking of traveling to the United States of America, Amnesty International has issued a travel advisory. If you decide to travel to the United States, they say, and I quote, be extra vigilant at all times and be wary of the ubiquity of firearms among the population. Avoid places where large numbers of people gather, especially cultural events, places of worship, schools, and shopping malls. Jesus. And exercise increased caution when visiting local bars, nightclubs, and or casinos. Welcome to Richmond VCU's international students who are coming back to school next week. Wow. <laughs> wow. Well, welcome back. This is the world that we live in. We are the danger zone. Okay. 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 Speaking of danger zones, down in Texas, we saw... Ah! <laughs> So reminders that uh, Kat and I don't share what news updates we're going to talk about. But down in Texas, there is a picture going around from the Galveston Police Department that had arrested a black man, put him in handcuffs on a leash and walked him down the street as two police officers were mounted on horses. Now... I need you to have a real Django visual in your head right now. This is find the picture. I was just looking a second ago. There's a rope. He's holding the rope. It's a rope. Next to this black man who has his hands tied behind his back. He was in the middle of a mental health crisis, by the way. By the way. By the way. So, um, yeah, not just for those traveling. It's for people right here. You can see police are still out here doing that. Yeah. Is is slavery over? Anyway. So I just wanted to touch base and ask if you had heard anything about what actions legislators are taking in light of the Virginia Beach shootings, in light of Texas, in light of Ohio. I know that Councilman Mike Jones has been calling for metal detectors in city buildings. Ralph Northam lowered the flags two weeks ago after the Ohio and Texas shootings, calling for, quote, votes and laws. Mm-hmm. And common sense gun legislation and and lots of other vague rhetoric that isn't very specific or mean anything. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen Mayor LeVar Stoney pop up in my Instagram a lot saying that, you know, he stands with Virginia Beach and we should stand with him, question mark, not sure what that means, but yeah, anything on your I, end? I haven't heard anything besides that, Kat. Cool, I think- cool, 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 cool. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah. So, and I think that we're at that point of like, we're looking at root cause. And I think that's where people start to back off a little bit is that we have to look at the system of why mass shootings are happening. Mass shootings are also not a synonym of black on black violence, right? These are not the same things. 
And gun violence and mass shootings are also not synonyms. So I think everyone's like, which problem do we tackle? We don't know. But yeah, what are we doing for our, our comrades down in 757? I'm, I'm not sure. And how are we translating that here? Are metal detectors and those things, is that going to help? Making our schools into more of these lockdown areas? Is that, is that actually productive? Yeah, I mean, that's just putting a Band-Aid on a gunshot wound instead of keeping the gunshot wound from happening to begin with. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not saying that we don't need big moves in legislation and policy. And access matters, right? And that's what legislation will do in restricting access and limiting access to guns. But we got to do something with people's mindset. White people's yeah. mindsets. This is a white domestic terrorism issue. Right. And I, I found this tweet by Brother B that I've been kind of sharing. And it says, America was founded on mass genocide and the enslavement of black people. Violence is in the very fabric of this country. Mass shootings is a symptom of the settler colonial white supremacist empire. For mass shootings to end, the empire has to crumble. So we still out here trying to crumble this empire of white supremacy. Speaking of white supremacy, we know that 680 undocumented people are now detained in southern Mississippi after one of the largest ICE raids in our history. And we've seen the pictures of the children that are now orphaned and relying on strangers for food and shelter. I've been really sick at the media pointing microphones and cameras in these children's faces when we see, like, you have different responsibilities, media. It's cheap. It's cheap. It's dirty. It's easy. I mean, I've been to those and it, it's just, it's quick. It's easy. Yeah. And I, I appreciated Beto the, this past week kind of calling that out of uh, the media's role. So I will say great job to you down there in Texas for that. By the way, this is also a good time to mention that anybody running for president that could also just take a very important Senate seat, maybe do that. Beto. Anyway, any other news that you want to share out here for the folks? I do, unless... You know, you live under a rock, dear audience, which is okay if you do. But mm -hmm. just to let you know, I think everybody knows this week, this past week or so, we have been remembering Toni Morrison. Mm -hmm. It was wonderful. Angela Davis gave a remembrance of her last week on Democracy Now. Mm -hmm. I think she said it very well. I think it's important for us to recognize how her words have radically altered the lives that we, we live um, um, she has helped to transform our collective sensibilities and, and also our awareness of the place of art and literature in, in, in the world. But I will say that Toni Morrison was one of, you know, and you're going to get these stories a dime a dozen from white people. Let me just remind you all, she did not write for white women. She did not write for white people. She wrote for black women. Right. She said that a thousand times. I will die on that hill. But I was... 14 or 15 when I read Beloved. Yeah. And that was a pivotal moment for me. I mean, it was a real kick in the head and it was like, oh, right. This is real. Hey, this happened. And, yeah. and the, she was a master of literature, which really conveyed the human experience in a way that the news cannot. Right. Right. Yeah. I will shout out The Bluest Eye, which was my first experience and exposure to the late, great Toni Morrison and really just pointed out the colorism and the privilege. And I have a light hazel eyes that always gets pointed out. But yeah, the the impact and 
that she's left on this world, especially for black women voices is so powerful and building a space for us to see ourselves and to hear the words from her comrades like Angela Davis and Nina. I just, it's been a powerful week. But this week on the show, we've invited some guests to talk about something that a lot of folks are questioning right now about what to do. And we're directing this conversation straight to white folks this week. And we've brought in some white folks to talk about it. And we're going to kind of unpack this word ally and the actions of ally. Stay tuned. So excited for these two guests this week, who I will also call my friends, but comrades in the work. So I am so excited to introduce Joshua Ballou and Jace Hatcher to the show. Welcome. Hey. Hello. Thanks for having us. Yes. Yes. Okay. So I have invited you all here very specifically to talk about a conversation that we hear in our community and to really unpack the word ally and allyship and what that means and how people can use the word, not use the word, but really how do they get involved in the work, right? Because I think that's what the word is supposed to do is to lead people to the work in a responsible manner. My co-host here, Kat, I've asked her to just kind of really jump in as a white voice of the show and allow the panel to have a conversation because I, I would consider as a person of color these three playing the ally role as we hear it in the community and in a respectable way so i really just am excited to sit back and contribute as a person of color and add in my roles there but i just really thank you all for being here on the show bringing some vulnerability to your identity and this conversation and also hear about your expertise in the world so joshua why don't we start with you and you tell us a little bit about your work and expertise in the community actually before we get started, I, I, <laughs> I do want to point out that today it's an unusual episode. Uh, we've never had a guest panel that was completely white presenting people before. And Chelsea just mentioned that she's going to take a step back today, which is very unusual. Our beloved co-host, <laughs> this is she is the reason that people tune in and the kind of conversations that we had. But especially for well-intended white folks listening, I think it's important to remind that the onus of these conversations is on white people. It shouldn't be up to people of color, especially women of color who carry the burden to facilitate these conversations. And so, Chelsea, I can't speak for you. We didn't have this conversation prior to, but I, I think for folks to know, my guess is that's a reason for you taking a little bit of a step back today. Yeah, it, it's, it's not my work. Right. And folks that follow and are in relationship with me will know that a lot of times I'll jokingly, not jokingly say, hey, well, I get paid for that work. And today I'm in a braver space with people that I trust. And that's why I'm having this conversation. Right. Please don't see me on the street and and or invite me to these conversations, you know, informally. But this is something that we've set up very intentionally that I don't feel like I will be harmed in because these are all things I have to consider when having these conversations in the community. But I'm also just really privileged to have folks like you all in my life so I can even have these conversations, right? And we can build together. So thanks for bringing that up, Kat. Yeah, sure thing. So uh, Joshua, apologize for interrupting you and Chelsea. Oh, thanks for thanks for what you shared. Um, I, I've 
been working in Richmond uh, for about four years now. Uh, I used to work for the state first uh, as a dispute resolution specialist with the attorney general's office. And then uh, I ran the mediation program for state employees through the Department of Human Resource Management. And that would just be what I would do during the day. And uh, after work, I would um, try to show up to things in the community uh, and got involved with a few different churches, uh, helping them having dialogues around race here in Richmond, as well as uh, some other kind of consulting and mediation and training services provided to nonprofits in this area. Nice. So I'm just going to jump right in before we get to Jason, ask you, how did your work as a mediator, how did you bring that into the professional space, especially with consideration of race? How did that play out for you? So when I was working for the state, specifically with the attorney general's office, we would spend some times in the mornings when people got to work early, and I would facilitate some conversations with coworkers uh, sitting around. It, it turned into one of one of my coworkers called it the "What are you angry about today?" conversation, <laughs> um, where we would just kind of talk about things, how things are going, how everyone's doing. One one of the times I asked the question, are white people fundamentally untrustworthy after mm. we had kind of, you know, spent a few months talking. And those kinds of conversations were really valuable to me as well as my coworkers, uh, I think, because everyone kept kept showing up. And it was an opportunity to be honest and bond and actually our, our teamwork improved as we were able to grow closer together in that way. Wow. Did you have, I mean, what did your coworkers look like? Were people reluctant to have those conversations? And if so, how did you prod them mm -hmm. well so i didn't lead off with that kind of question um <laughs> yeah and and uh, my coworkers also were you know working in dispute resolution and so had had a kind of predisposition to conversation and, and understanding each other mainly the core group was uh, me another white man uh, a black man and a black woman and then sometimes uh, some other people would join in as well but that provided kind of a, a good opportunity for me and and my white coworker to hear perspectives from a black man and a black woman that they're different uh that they are individual and that you know we have things to learn from them wow okay well i just want to ask are white people fundamentally untrustworthy that is a heavy question i appreciate you just putting that in the atmosphere without even unpacking that or answering that that's disruptive <laughs> af and i love it so much okay anyway thanks so much for being here josh <laughs> jace Hello. Tell us about your fabulousness. I wish for this moment we did have like videos and y'all check out the pictures online, but I just start smiling every time I see this woman because she just brings so much energy to the room and you're always looking fly. So <laughs> welcome to the radio world. That was a heck of an intro. Thank you so much. <laughs> Um, yeah. Hi, my name is Yustina, but everybody calls me Jace. I prefer that you do. Don't be out in the streets trying to pronounce my real name, please. <laughs> Yeah, so my role in the work is a lot, probably a lot less intentional than Joshua's, if I can call myself out that way. You know, I came from a really working class background. I just kind of took whatever opportunity came to me. Mm -hmm. And I happened to leave the U.S. when I was 17 and I lived overseas for the last 13 years. And it was during that time that each job that I had, each degree that I got was moving me more and more towards an understanding of the deep racism that is in the global infrastructure that we have currently mm -hmm. and the need for me to come back to the States and really try and find some answers for those questions. So I'm a community liaison here in Richmond and my background is in internal displacement and research around individuals experiencing displacement in the global context. Nice. And two questions. Well, first of all, where did you live when you were abroad? 
Oh, boy. Um, hey, yeah, tell us yeah. all the places. <laughs> so I lived in New Zealand for seven years. People will now know the city that I lived in, Christchurch, for an unfortunate wow. reason. Yeah, and then I left New Zealand and I lived in South Korea for five years. I lived in a place called Tebu and the city of Seoul. And then I lived in Ecuador, in Quito, and then I came back here. Wow. And then the other thing I wanted to ask you was about what you, if you could tell us a little bit more about when you say displaced persons. Indeed, yeah. So displaced persons is a technical kind of international law term for individuals who are experiencing any kind of displacement. So that can be displacement because of development projects in a majority world country. It can be displacement due to violent conflict, which is usually how people will hear it referred to. And in the past couple of years, it absolutely can be referred to people experiencing ecological migration displacement. Yeah, so anyone who's seeking asylum, anyone who is a refugee, and people who are internally displaced displaced within their own country's borders are all considered displaced people. And I understand that within Richmond, you were working with a certain group of people. Indeed. So technically, underneath international law, someone experiencing homelessness is not considered a internally displaced person. If I had the right to change the, right. <laughs> the definition, I would probably work on that. Yeah. So I worked in the homelessness services system for a nonprofit called Home Again. Shout out to Home Again, who has three shelters here in the city and also just community housing. Nice. Joshua, I'd love for you to jump into and just add a little bit about your international lens as well. Mm -hmm. So I uh, grew up in Macau, China. Uh, and if people are familiar with Hong Kong, it's just across the Pearl River Delta from Hong Kong. And it, it was a Portuguese colony for, for a while. And so I learned Chinese. Uh, I went through Chinese school, grew up as a white person in that context, which is different than being a white person in Richmond. And so when I came to the U.S., I was coming into a situation where I was frustrated with uh, my identity as an American and all that had happened in the Iraq war or was happening uh, with the Iraq war. And and kind of had to learn to figure out what my role was in the U.S. And what I kind of thought of fairly quickly was that, you know, if I, if I could be a white man in the U.S., what would I want a white man to be? And I was like, well, I am a white man in the U.S. Uh, <laughs> what can I be doing to help the situation? And I don't know that I've helped it very much when I came. Obama was in office, and I'm, I'm headed back to Macau this fall. Great and timing, Yeah, Josh. yeah. You're welcome, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> There's a white yeah. man again. <laughs> Just joking. Yeah. So we've invited you all here to kind of unpack the word ally. So... <laughs> yeah, Jace, you, you asked a great question before we started recording. You're just like, okay, so when we're talking ally here, like what's our operational definition? And I really appreciated that. So what do you guys think? Yeah, I guess I wanted to just address the fact that I feel like ally as a label is pretty darn unhelpful. Mm. <laughs> um, yes, I guess that will be a part of this conversation. But just to touch on that up front, I think allyship as a label isn't super helpful, but if it is a set of actions that are relevant to anti-racist work, then labeling it as such is, is not a bad thing, but just sort of being careful about how we're using it or conscious of how we're using it. Yeah, I agree with, um, I don't, I don't really ever think of myself as an ally for anything, but I understand that's, that's a term used and, and could be helpful in some situations. So I'm interested and excited to kind of hear this mm -hmm. conversation as it progresses. How would you all think? When you're hearing it out and people like, I want to be an ally or white ally, what do you all think the society definition is? Ooh, which society? Ooh. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I love 
what you said and what I, I think the activists that I look to the most are the ones who reiterate that allyship is it's really not a noun. It's a verb. It's a set of actions. Right. And for the love of God, white people should not call themselves allies. Mm. But I think it, it's who is using this term. I see a gradient between what I call like the woke ass white people, which I have been guilty of being but that I mean are the people who may be well intended and and say that they have certain aims and are so frustrated and love the environment and believe in all holding hands and but they don't do anything they just can't bear to follow the news they you know I love a bleeding heart but they're bleeding hearts without actions to try to stop the bleeding and then you have the other end of the spectrum which is really hard-working people who do the work who show up who go to the meetings who vote at every single election who get out the vote who do the work and I I think that everybody's using this term ally, but everybody's operational different, just like you have the gradient of liberals from the, you know, quote unquote, moderate liberals to the more progressive liberals, that the definition of allyship differs along that gradient, whereas the less acting people who are often the people who would quickly describe themselves as allies are people who are like, oh, it's what it's what's in my heart. It's what's in my words. Whereas on the other end, you have people who are like, well, no, it's it's just things that we do. And, you know, sometimes we're going to get it right. And other times we're going to get it wrong. Yeah, well, I mean, if you think about it from the kind of more well-known international perspective of what is an ally, right? If the U.S. had allies across the world, what would that relationship mean? The relationship means that there is some tangible benefit to both parties, that that name exists. And I don't necessarily think that that's always how allyship is used when white people claim it. Ooh, mm-hmm. I like that, tangible benefits. Yeah, what, what, about, what about you, Joshua? Even if it's not something, the word you use it, I know that you're in a lot of spaces where you're you're even brought in, both of you all are, whether you know it or not, brought in as the ally, even if we don't, like I said, we, I'm saying person of color, don't tag you as that label. How does that feel? Because I know I get asked a lot of places just because I'm black, right? <laughs> and so, uh, and that's kind of how I felt today. I was like, yeah, I just need white people. So How does it feel to be called or be put in a position as an ally? I would say for me, in all my 13 years overseas, I never heard the term ally used in this way. Thank you. (laughs) Ever hear it used, Joshua? It's quite new to me, I'll be honest. Um, love that. Something that America has totally like (laughs) just blown (laughs) up out of the water. But go ahead. Yeah. So probably if I can call myself out again, I only heard it in the last six months. I never really heard it referenced before. Mm-hmm. Um, again, this isn't my like site of work, so perhaps that's why. But when someone uses me in that way, I think they know already I'm more than willing to do that, be in that space for them. They don't have to ask me how I feel about it. I think I've made it clear through my actions, through our relationships, you can ask me to be that person for you. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. No problem, you know. Mm-hmm. Something, uh, a situation that I thought of when I was thinking about this conversation uh, was um, last year, a pastor from a a church uh, in the region came in and met with me and a few other people uh, wanting to kind of get some advice on how to handle a situation in his town where a Latin American church was meeting in his church building, the the church building that his, his congregation met in. And most of the congregants in this Latin American church were undocumented. And the sheriff of this town was cozying up to ice and he didn't know what to do. He was 
meeting with the pastors of uh, the Latin American pastors saying, you know, uh, you know, if you need me to go with you to meet the sheriff, like, I'll be glad to do that. You know, like, we need to, like, maybe get ahead of this. You know, like, I don't want them coming. You know, I don't want it to wait until they're at our door. Um, you know, let's try to do something. And I think that is a common understanding of allyship of like, hey, if you need me, I'm here. And as as we were having the conversation, uh, I began to wonder and I kind of asked questions about like this white pastor's relationship with the sheriff mm-hmm. and how it's not like it, 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 there is importance to, to not stepping in and, and fighting other people's battles. And he has his own battles to fight. And I think sometimes being an ally is putting people of color on the front line saying you lead, except the front line's not glorious, it's dangerous. Mm. And this white pastor could go to the sheriff and say, look, I care for you as a person. Like racism is bad for you. It's not just bad for these other people. It's bad for you. It's bad for me. This is my experience. Having a conversation with the sheriff that goes, goes beyond someone else's work it's actually his own work as well this has just been something that i've been thinking about yeah i really appreciate that jace brought up that it's not something that is used internationally right it's not a common term globally because for me it just was like oh something else the united states white people had to create to center themselves yeah. i need a word we need yeah. a title i didn't yeah mm-hmm <laughs> like, I, because it, it it brings the big the big picture to this, and what Joshua just said about yeah, putting us at the front lines, but that front line is dangerous, and and putting it back on the quote unquote ally or white person to do to just do the work that is their work. You don't necessarily need a name or a title for that, y'all, but apparently maybe you do to recognize it's a new role for you, right? You get a new position, you get a new title, so maybe that's what white folks around here needed. I don't know. I don't understand it because it's always just, I feel like just be a good person and do good things. Mm-hmm. And that means passing the mic to people who have been silenced and pushed out of the sphere. And mm-hmm. I mean, I even feel weird talking now, honestly. Yeah, I can tell all of you are so used to taking steps back that using your voice in, in these manners, because I've seen all of you, especially Jace, when we get passionate and you can come out there and say the things that white folks need to hear sometimes to really check themselves. So I... It, it's interesting being in a room with everybody here. But this is, it's just the culture of that, right? Of people being comfortable in these conversations. And you all are all very comfortable in this conversation. I'm really interested to hear more from Joshua about this work in the churches and the faith sense of especially white churches, because we all know the most segregated time of the week is Sunday morning, mm-hmm. right? And even if you want to speak a little bit too of outside of Christianity would be great too. But like how has this conflict, especially around race conversation been going within the faith world? So when I moved to Richmond, I was determined to join a white church. I'd never been a part of a white church before. I am Christian. So I was intending to be a part of a Christian faith community. And what type of churches were you involved in before? Uh, Chinese right. churches. Right. And then when I was uh, uh, in Northern Virginia, I was at a black church. Can I ask why you were intentionally looking for a white church? Uh, yeah, because it was clear that the white people had the problem. <laughs> and as a white person, I can show up and talk with white people and white people will be more relaxed about things than if there's a mixed race group, especially initially and kind of getting the ball rolling and getting people to even begin to acknowledge, you know, the history of the U.S., especially coming from the outside, I can say, hey, I'm white, so 
this is like less threatening and I'm not from here. So what's going on? Like I see these things. Why are these places segregated? I had to educate myself because white people have a lot of myths that they tell themselves about why things are the way they are. Wow. Mostly about most of them have to do with we're better or they were some, you know, the black people were uh, enslaved. And so they're just not as good now. You know, we just need to help cultivate their culture and help them become as good as us someday that kind of those kinds of myths about explaining the world so educating myself about no actually that's not how it went down this is how it went down this is what i've read this is what i've heard mm -hmm. it was really helpful so educating myself showing up in spaces being curious about what people already know what people already think i love that you chose a church based on disrupting it <laughs> <laughs> well it's what jesus did in the temple so. boom um, <laughs> mic drop <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. So, Jace, would would you say that you have ever walked in a room or a space very intentionally ready to disrupt it as a white person? <laughs> have I? <laughs> I? Don't know what you're trying to imply. Do oh, I know you any other yeah. way? <laughs> no, listen. Like I said, I never set out to do this work, but it's just it really is the work, y'all. So for anyone listening, get involved, you know, and I guess we'll go over a couple of ways to do so. But being less afraid, being less caring about whether people like you or not mm -hmm. is going to be a really important part of this. So yeah, I mean, I, I choose spaces intentionally to walk into not to act like the woke white person, but to ensure that we as white people are pushing ourselves a little bit. You know, we're doing more for the work than just talking about how we're about it. There's actually some actions being taken and it's that's enjoyable. It's kind of like, like, you know, if you hire a personal trainer, it hurts to have them make you go the next five reps, but you also want the results. So I feel like there are a lot of people out there and I want to believe in this that want those results towards anti-racist work, but it is going to hurt a little bit. I love that. Get your reps in. Get your reps in, y'all. <laughs> The anti-white supremacy reps. <laughs> Everybody, four sets of ten. Okay. And I, I love what you all are saying about choosing these spaces to enter with intention. Because one thing that's difficult and that's really come to the conversation since Trump got elected was who to have these conversations with, right? I mean, I come from a family that's deeply conservative and in a way that you just can't. And I think a lot of people have encountered that and they're like, okay, who do we try to engage? And you're talking about getting results and doing the extra reps. And I think a lot of those times the conversations means engaging people who you love, who you said, don't worry about, you know, people disliking you. For me, that more looks like my friend group, mm. because aside from my family, I don't really surround myself with conservative, deeply conservative Republican people. I just don't have time for that. I find that it's more productive to talk to liberal people who have different gradations of ideology. You have to push those people you love to have the conversations. And when I say people you love, you know, I don't mean your conservative family all the time, but it's about right. picking and choosing who, I don't know, to an extent, maybe recognizing where that conversation is going to be heard and where it's going to be productive. Like, what am yeah. I going to accomplish here? Yeah, like you two come with very specific skills in these conversations, right? That a lot of white folks might not feel like, oh, I can have this conversation because I don't have any training in conflict resolution or management and don't have this international experience. But what I'm hearing Kat saying is like finding places where you can speak up and what's comfortable and productive and also not just harmful for you to where you feel like you're going to have to shut down. What really opened my eyes to me is when I started really having holiday groups around Thanksgiving for white folks that are talking. I didn't 
didn't mean it for it to be white folks, but it always was white people that were go- getting ready to go home for the holidays and had to have these conversations with family. And that's just not something that people of color, we have to worry about going home and uh, worrying about our family being super conservative because, you know, usually our family ethics match our political alignments and what's good and bad for us. But without, even if you don't want to call out like specific names or orgs, like what are some places, even if it's like work or gym that you have maybe come in and done the work as well as giving people examples of how they could do that in their own life? So yeah, the, the, I appreciate the point about not, uh, there's intention is important. That's the first step. And then how, how you do what you're going to do. Right is actually what makes the difference. Um, And so I've had lots of intentions in my life and I've actually most of the time not done them well, I I think. Mm -hmm. Um, And part of that I think is uh, becoming more concerned with myself than the other, Uh, being able to dismiss other people as bad, uh, to assure myself that I'm good. Uh, You know, I have good intention to, you know, confront someone about racism. Uh, Wow, look, it didn't go well. They're a bad person, I'm a good person. Those kinds of things are, uh, I think, unhelpful. They just make me feel good. Doesn't actually help help the world. And that's the kind of work that I'm trying to continually do and, and get better at is how I'm engaging with people. Because if I'm just trying to make myself the hero, I can easily do that. I really love the accountability that you just modeled, right? The I have a lot of intentions and I haven't done most of them really well. I don't hear white folks say that a lot. And not have a but or a what, I, you know, and, and then go into the hero savior piece. So I just really appreciate hearing that. That to me is helpful. And so the how is something. And how do you check the how? Yeah. Checking the how is difficult because, you know, I'm a results person. So I'm like, well, as Joshua was saying, did this work out? Does that mean they're a bad person and I'm a good person? Hell no. <laughs> we both bad people, you know. <laughs> but what usually is the case is I'll take a step back and relive the conversation in my mind, particularly with my family, as Kat was talking about. I wouldn't say my family in particular is deeply conservative. I'm a white presenting person, but there are a lot of people in my family who aren't white. So maybe that makes a little bit of a difference for us. But I do have a particular family member who I get into it with all the time. And I would say when I was younger, I did that conversation poorly (laughs) often. And all it did was create a rift between me and this person. Mm -hmm. And they just moved further and further, deeper and deeper into that sense of they were right. And I moved further and deeper into my sense of I am right. And we just can't have this conversation anymore. So as I've gotten older, I think I checked the how by saying to myself, did it end up that this person and I had a conversation that at the end of it, I felt like I respected them, but also pushed them. And did I not worry about myself in that space? If I was constantly worrying about how they interpreted me or how well I argued, then I'm doing it wrong. That's kind of how I check it now. You said something really important, Jace, that you are a white presenting person. Unpack that a little bit for us. (laughs) Yeah, I, again, these terms are, I don't totally know how prescriptive they are (laughs) across the board, but for me, the way I use it is people see me as white, but also a little bit questioning, like, what are you? You know, I'm like ethnic. I like to call it the Kardashian effect. (laughs) (laughs) Which effect? (laughs) Mm. Right. (laughs) Solid question. Um, Yeah. But, you know, it can have the effect of positivity. It can open, like... I find it a lot easier to walk into spaces than some of my more white presenting friends, but it also has the impact of 
sometimes I will be used as the pawn, especially in anti-blackness when it comes to women. Yeah. And I think that's a really important piece for white presenting women to be thinking about because I'm seeing this a lot. You have these like curvy girls with the hair and the lips and whatever, and they're with a black athlete. And I question that sometimes because I think, what is it that makes that woman so desirable is it that she has all the features of a black woman, but the added bonus that she's not black? That's mm. a very serious implication for our society and how we view black women. Um, yeah. Put that out there. <laughs> yeah. No, it is. It's, it's yeah. a huge one. And I remember the first time I heard you talk about that, I was like, gosh, this is so important. This is such an important piece for women, especially curvy women, white women that feel comfortable in black spaces. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And what impact that can have, as well as that race is a social construct, which is why we say white presenting, because I'm just completely assuming anything about you, but you do carry that privilege of the lacking of more melanin. Yeah, and white presenting people out there, it's okay. It's right. okay to be white presenting. You can be proud of your cultures and where you come from and still fully acknowledge that you show up in rooms as a white person. What is uh, the, pr the definition of white presenting? Mm, I think white presenting means, at least in the American context, very much so not black, right? <laughs> okay, yeah. But also there's some aspect to it that you could pass. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure people have heard that term. Yeah. yeah. You could pass as white. Maybe your hair is straighter, your nose is taller, or that's a very Asian term. Um, I've never heard that, <laughs> yeah. but yeah. Sorry, yeah. It's okay. It's like the bridge of your nose is tall. It's quite an important beauty oh. feature in some Asian countries. But um, yeah, so those types of things are are what I think help you be white presenting. But the consciousness raising of all of this is that that is what gives you white privilege. Right. And that's why it's important to think about. Because I hear a lot of people like, well, I'm Jewish and I'm... Cool. It You're white. <laughs> <laughs> I My family carries the burden of the Holocaust of... And that's legit. It is. But that doesn't mean you're not receiving white privilege. I, those right. two conversations are different. Yeah, they... Um... Something about getting beyond good and bad, I think, is important in this conversation and yeah. acknowledging complexity about how, like, yeah, this is complex and you can have male privilege and without uh, racial privilege and mm -hmm. you can have it all, you know, or you can have some, you know, all kinds of things can happen, personal life and your family background. That was actually kind of the unexpected outcome of that question of are white people fundamentally untrustworthy was my black male coworker said, well, I thought. When I heard you ask that, I thought, well, are, are men fundamentally untrustworthy? Ooh. Mm. And so that kind of cracked open a deeper conversation just about how we relate to each other and making it more complex. And I think more complexity actually helps these conversations. Definitely. Definitely. And to be ready for that complexity. Because if you're coming for the simple solution or answer, you're going to come out more frustrated. And then you might go out and do that harmful, quote unquote, intentional work. What about enrichment specifically? Any places that you feel are doing, first of all, what, if we're not going to say ally, right? If you're not going to call it that, what are we calling it of just people doing the work? What, how do you even name this? Because I guess we, people need a name. They, I don't know. I feel like there is a need for people to fill, to feel like they're different. How what kind of space, name, label, brand do we give them? Or how do you all sp speak about it? I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Unless, you know, your friend of color asks you to come on the radio and talk about <laughs> yeah. it. And Jesse's like, let's talk about white people. And I was like, yeah. 
yes, I'm there. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, well, what makes you all really frustrated about white people as white people? Oh, boy. Oh, Kat was ready. Jump in, girl. <laughs> we got about, we got a few more minutes before we go to white, what's your privilege, but what, this is, and I'm going to be real, this is really just something I would enjoy hearing. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people would, yeah. and I want to give that to you listeners. <laughs> so <laughs> what frustrates me the most about white people, I think, is a lot of the, I'm going to speak for white women, because I think a lot of my work is with white women, and I think it's just the, the fear, the tears, the, like, putting the pressure onto other people, always I don't know if we use this term in America, fobbing it off. Fobbing it off means like giving it to someone, like blaming someone else or like, oh, it was the guy who did it. It was the white men. It wasn't white women. Right. Yeah, white women, we need to take a lot of ownership of some stuff we are doing, we are complicit in. That's important. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, I get frustrated most with with other white men. And what I'm what I'm learning is that I hate in others what I hate would hate about myself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like if I'm interacting with a white man who is in that moment exhibiting all the things I don't want to be, I begin to hate him and, and that's not helpful because right. I can have conversations with him that no one else can. So kind of recognizing when I'm, you know, when that, those instances are happening and, and practicing some self-compassion because maybe I have been like that in the past. I have done that. You know, I don't ever want to do that again. This person is doing that and not fall for the trap that, you know, the make-believe idea that somehow if I kill this external monster, I'll kill the monster within myself. Mm. That's powerful. Cat, don't act like you don't have something. She's probably just switching. <laughs> so many, just running through. We're, we're limited on time here. I mean, I'm just constantly cranky, like that's my state of existence. So I'm always annoyed in some way or the other. I would have to say, you know, it's it's hard to make a blanket statement because I know so many different kinds of white people. I appreciate, Jace, that you called out white women specifically. I would like to say that I get very frustrated with, I try really hard not to group people, but that said- Welcome to America. Yeah, right. I, I, there. I can think of many white women who are very loving and compassionate people and who claim compassion for the people they serve. A lot of them work for nonprofits, for example. Mm. But that compassion is actually very paternalistic and very uh, patronizing. And I I just I I think it's maddening. And I I also would like to call out people, white people in the nonprofit sector, especially here in Richmond. Um, You know, do it. Equity grants going to white ladies and the white ladies accepting them to do equity work. Right, right. Well, period. (laughs) So my question, and I would like to hear your question too, maybe before they answer, is what is a myth? Because you mentioned white people have these myths that they tell themselves. And that's something that's been a real conversation piece the last week about what is the myth of America's of us believing that we are so good, right? That's the myth that we tell each other ourselves. So I was going to ask, what are the myths that they're trying to dismantle? But what was your question, Kat, before we go? So I wanted to ask, how do you see the connections between the work abroad and the work in Richmond? There's so much differences, but what are the similarities between what people are doing far and what people are doing here? And also, do you think that there is validity in people making the effort to be more aware about international affairs? Do you think that that ties in with doing the work? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it has to be tied in. My experience with Americans, especially white Americans, is that they're either domestic focused or internationally focused. And it it's been difficult finding people who can see the connections. Uh, I've really appreciated Angela Davis's emphasis on the intersectionality of struggles. Uh, how when when police were 
you know, invading Ferguson with uh, military vehicles and using tear gas. Uh, Palestinian protesters were tweeting out different ways to deal with it because it's the same manufacturer. Right now, what's happening in Hong Kong uh, with the police cracking down on protesters there, the way that it's been used uh, has led the UK to stop exporting tear gas to Hong Kong. And in its place, there's a manufacturer in Pennsylvania that is providing the tear gas. And so all these things are connected. Uh, if we're just focusing on our own little spot, it's hard to, first of all, see uh, how, so sometimes see how we're making a difference because the rest of the world is, is um, falling apart. But also we can, we're missing out on the opportunity to receive encouragement from the work being done in other places. And every time uh, I visit you know, anyone who's doing the work, however you want to characterize it in someplace else. It's just extremely encouraging. And, and I think that's something that people have to gain. So I actually, this ties in really well with Chelsea's question about the myths. And I think one of the number one myths when it comes to both putting together what's happening internationally and what's happening domestically is the myth that you can get past colonialism. It's impossible. And colonialism has affected pretty much at this point every single person and living being that is on the planet. And it is responsible for a lot of the foundations that we experience through structural racism and even ecological racism. So I would say that it's incredibly valuable to look into, as one of my professors used to say, to begin at the beginning. You start telling the story halfway through just at the beginning of America or just at why racial equity is where it's at in 2019, you're not actually getting to any real answers. And it will be difficult to see where the connections are between what's going on with a tear gas company in Pennsylvania and what's going on in Syria. But actually, those things are very delicately intertwined and have a lot of connectors. Good stuff. All right, we have just a couple minutes. So before we let you all leave, I'm going to invite you to take part of What's Your Privilege? What's Your Privilege is a segment of the show where we invite our guests to identify what is their privilege as they walk around the world and how they use it to disrupt the myth of white supremacy. So who wants to go first? And because Joshua did bring up the myths too, any other myths that you want to bring up here as well for white people to disrupt, we can chat about that too. And I would love to also hear from Kat today about her privilege. So who wants to go first? I'm struggling with how to quantify this. Mm. There's a lot. <laughs> There's so many. I mean, I the laundry list. Um, since we touched a lot on the international piece, I think I would like to touch on that. So I would say my privilege is I have an American passport and that's a big deal. Yeah. So I was in Ecuador, as I mentioned, I was having dinner with a girlfriend of mine who I had known for years, an Ecuadorian national, and she works I won't say exactly where she works, but she works and has a lot of interaction with the U.S. government. And so we are drinking too much roncito and talking about this conversation. She's talking about her work and how she's just considered local country knowledge. And so that means within the infrastructure of where she worked, she would never be able to really be promoted. Even though she has all the skills, even though she speaks Spanish and English and has a master's degree because she's local country knowledge, that's just not considered quote unquote, good enough. Wow. Yeah. I was a little shocked by that, even though I had studied with the United Nations and knew that this was the case. After a couple of bottles of this roncito and we were lamenting together, finally she slams her fist on the, the table and she yells at me in Spanish and she says, Jace, I don't need you sitting here lamenting with me crying. You could go back to America and tell them everything that you know 
and they would listen to you and they would never listen to me. And that was a pretty distinct moment for me where I was happy that she did that, like happy that she gave me that she didn't have to do that emotional labor for me. Right. But I took that on really heavily and I was like, you're totally right. All the things that I think are getting in my way, I still even have a path towards the answer and she doesn't, you know, so that's huge privilege. Thank you for saying that. And before we move to the next person, I want to ask you a question that I get asked a lot. So just feel like it's a comfortable trade off. But like, what are you? (laughs) (laughs) By the way, don't ever ask anybody that. So yeah, please. (laughs) I honestly thought this wasn't going to come up. I was here to be white. (laughs) (laughs) But it's important for people to hear like you representing as a passing white person but you know talk about really quickly yeah so so i have mixed multicultural heritage definitely a lot of white in my family there's also some spanish and some native american so have connections to those cultures in my own way some of them more distinctly than others but yeah very cool who's next so when when you um asked about myths uh, for me one of the important myths that I would like to dismantle. I don't know how I'm doing that very effectively, but is the idea of American exceptionalism, mm. Mm. Um, which is intertwined with white supremacy. Yep. And it there is an American exceptionalism that says America is exceptionally good, that it has, you know, all kinds of good traits like freedom and, and liberty and wealth and capitalism, however however that gets put together. And there's also an American exceptionalism that says America is, is exceptionally bad. And I think that also sets America apart as special, somehow different from the rest of the world and somehow kind of on its different plane. And I think that also leads to disconnection and also is kind of coming out of a white supremacy that if white people did something, it was especially bad in America and nowhere else in the world has experienced something like this. And again, you miss out on seeing the connection and how this has all unfolded uh, around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so kind of, again, moving beyond this good and bad and seeing the complexity of things so that people can can really work on changing the bad right. uh, and moving toward the good, uh, I think is, is a myth that, that I want to focus on. Nice. Thank you. I am a short white lady, which means that traditionally, physically, I'm not intimidating so long as I keep my mouth closed. So when I was thick in journalism, when I would approach somebody randomly for an interview, I usually didn't get balked at, uh, especially when I was working in the country and I was talking to a lot of old white man farmers. It was never a problem for me to secure those interviews. I have since taken a back seat in journalism, especially food writing, because it's very white dominated and I feel like it was is time to step down and also simultaneously pressuring a lot of the editors that I'd reached out toward, especially the white editors, to publish more writers of color. And really quickly, I'm going to say that my privilege is, is that I'm light skinned and white people feel less intimidated with me. So therefore, they get to invite me in. They get to I get to ask for payment for this. I get more opportunities to talk about race than other folks that may carry this and have more experience than I do. And when I'm in those rooms and have more opportunities, I just try and pass that those opportunities, especially the paid ones to the other black women specifically that are doing this work. And really quickly my privilege is having white folks that i can tap when i'm getting tapped on too much and say hey go go talk to this person and i appreciate that can i yeah add something please sorry so my wife says my greatest weakness is i i don't know how to be vulnerable and uh, i think this kind of question is an example of that is the privilege of being able to not answer what my privilege is right and so 
when I first came to the U.S., I was given uh, the book Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria by Beverly Tatum. And in the first chapter, it starts out with an excerpt from Audre Lorde that describes the mythic ideal as a tall white Christian man, blue eyes, blonde hair. So I'm almost that. I have dirty blonde hair. And so in the U.S., I have like all privileges that, that I can imagine. And then being in spaces where... Like I can show up and keep my mouth shut in white spaces, get all those privileges. And then when I show up in mixed race or, or black spaces or, or spaces with other races, I can also keep my mouth shut. And it's like, wow, this white guy is better than all the other white guys. And so I, I think oftentimes I am given this this privilege of being like just good enough to be better than all the other white guys. Yeah. As well as just being another white guy in the system who gets, you know, tapped for things and like is trusted more than other people. Well, shout out to your wife, Abigail Ballou, another person out here doing that work. But how can people follow you all and get in touch with you all? Yeah, please feel free to follow me on Instagram. It's the period, Y-A-S-E. And also follow Black-owned businesses in the city, Jazz Hands. Shout out to Happily Natural Day and other spaces in the city that are holding a lot of space for Black people. Make sure you support, give people money. <laughs> That's real. Yep. <laughs> Thanks, Jace. Yeah, uh, shout out to uh, my wife doing good work uh, as a white woman, to Deron Chavis uh, as a black man. Hope to become like him someday with his, his demeanor and his uh, presence, as well as the Ginterburn Gardner program, Ron Bagat with uh, Richmond uh, Public Schools and all the good work they're doing as well. Great. Thank you all so much for being here and hope to talk to you again. Thanks, Chelsea. Feels good not to have the weight of the whole conversation on me and my black ass. <laughs> Just kidding. That was a good combo. Yeah, it was really productive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I really appreciated what was said about reflection. We're all going to screw up. We're all going to get stuck. And I think the important thing is whether or not we think that a conversation accomplished something, it's important to reflect and, and look at the different moves. You know, something Joshua said about, I'm judging this person as a good or a bad person. And Jace was talking about her approaches to conversations that she's reflected on later and said, well, may, hey, maybe if I'd you know, gone from this with a different lens or it would have gone better. Right. Continuing to work the work and that you're going to mess up. It's going to be okay. But continuing to move in that space of discomfort and reflect with yourself is important. Also recognizing that self-awareness about what you may dislike in other people, you might actually just be seeing and projecting from yourself. That having these conversations are your work, man. Not reaching out to me and my DMs asking if it's okay of what you did. So for white people who want to do the work of racial equity, of realizing racial equity, of realizing social change and social justice, one thing that's important is to not consult your friends of color for what to do and whether or not you did the right thing or how to move forward because they're doing enough emotional labor as it is. This is a white supremacy problem. This is a problem born in the concept of whiteness and therefore it's up to white people to navigate these situations. I really appreciated the idea of making sure that your work doesn't put POCs in, at the front line. And that's a good distinction of passing the mic versus putting our bodies and sacrificing our bodies' voices, economic freedom, right? Because all of this is tied to our jobs and, 
and just survival, but making sure that we're not on that front lines. And that's a good way to also just check yourself of how you are using POCs and your friends of color in, in these moments. And I do always think that, you know, white folks need some sort of guidance in the racial conversation, but you can pay for that. There are professionals that you can invite in, black facilitators for that work to do that in a more formal setting, but don't just go reaching out for your black friend looking for a pat on the back that you, that you so you're doing the work. And that's really what I heard today is that this word ally was created for white people to have a pat on the back. And, and maybe too, for me as a person of color to just be able to identify who's a friend and who's a foe, because the question are white people fundamentally untrustworthy? The answer to me was yes. And that's why we needed a, a term to kind of identify, or at least, you know, we you can come in the room and we'll question you. You'll interrogate you a little bit, but it is hard for me to know who are actually even intentionally trying to do the work. Maybe not getting it right all the time, but how to identify folks. And I also appreciate that he also brought up the question about men. Are they inherently untrustworthy? That's that's a good conversation for another show. Well, I'll do the thing that white people love. Thanks for doing the work, (laughs) y'all. And being an ally, an accomplice. Gold star. (laughs) You get a kudos. But definitely thanks for listening to the show and subscribing and sharing it. But before we go, we want to give a shout out. To other great folks that are doing the work in our sister show, RVA Dirt, happy anniversary. You all have been here doing the work in Richmond, Virginia, RVA for three years now. And that's a big deal because your individual journalism has really made our city better. And I just am so honored (laughs) to be part (laughs) of this relationship from the station, from my friends, from community. Thanks, y'all. Thanks so much for tuning in this week. I'm from the R.